she kind of thought about it. She goes, Dad, I think my friends are asking, is it necessary? Mm. Why? Why would I need this? Why? Why would I need Jesus? Why would I need church? Why do I need Christianity? And I and it just, I was like, wow, that is what secularism does. It just says, hey, you can write a script for your life and you can find identity and purpose and meaning and community and you don't need anything from the transcendent world. You don't need a heavenly being to give any of that to you. Um, and yet, as I watch her and her friends feel the pressure to manufacture those things in their life, hmm. you know, to not receive anything from God or the gods, so to speak, as I think historically, but as they try to achieve all of that, it is overwhelming. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Communitas podcast. Uh, excited to be here today with a dear friend and also be co-hosting today with Joy. Um, and we are talking today to John Rittner, an old friend, a guy with a ton of experience in church planting, uh, leading churches, and we're going to hear a lot more about much of that today. Uh, also now a co-worker with us uh, back on Communitas senior leadership staff. So pretty excited about that. And we'll get into some of that too. But John, welcome. Glad to uh, have you with us today. Thanks. It's great to be with you guys, Jeff and Joy. This has been fun for me to listen to these podcasts and uh, now to come uh, back on staff with you all and be part of creating them and, and creating our future together. It's going to be exciting. Right on. Hey, uh, for a lot of folks do know you within the organization, but for those outside the organization, give us a, a snapshot of some of your experience and how you got into uh, even missions work um, and some of your, you know, experience with the church. Yeah. Um, gosh, you know, I, I always said the first line of my autobiography would be, I grew up with uh, pastors for parents, all five of them. Uh, as a, a preacher's kid, my, my parents were both Methodist pastors. They met at Union Seminary in New York City, got divorced when I was two, remarried at four to other seminary students. And by the time I was 13, I had had five different people in my life who I called a, a father or mother, you know, stepmother, stepfather, who were all ordained uh, Methodist pastors. And uh, wow. so I, I added a, a, another stepmother later in life, even who is uh, works in the church world. Uh, and so my entire life growing up was basically in and around church, around camping, um, retreats, you know, helping out on Sundays and all that stuff. And the, the best way I can describe my childhood was it was kind of uh, indoctrination into churchianity without me really having a personal experience with Jesus Christ. And so I don't blame my parents or even blame their churches for that. I think it was just part of my journey and where I was. Um, I probably got, you know, immunized with just enough of the church to not actually get the virus of Jesus and the Holy Spirit into my life. And so uh, it wasn't until I went off to college and had decided that uh, church wasn't for me, Christianity wasn't for me. That was part of my family's life, but I was going to set on my own track. And uh, I joined a fraternity house and uh, was diving into that life full steam ahead, as you can imagine a young 18-year-old doing. And little did I know that in that fraternity house at the College of William & Mary, uh, the Holy Spirit was working. And God had already lifted up a small group of Christians 
who were embedded in that house, living as kind of cross-cultural disciple-making missionaries. Hmm. And um, those guys just impacted me. You know, they were the ones who I think shared the gospel in a way that resonated with me for the first time. They were the ones who were praying for me regularly. Uh, they were the ones who invited me into their rooms to participate in a prayer circle or a Bible study. Uh, ironically, they never invited me to church on Sunday. I think they knew enough mm. to know that the culture of a frat house was Saturday night was a big night and I was never going to get up and go to church. Um, but even when I decided I was not going to attend any church in my life, they were really being the church to me. Wow. And so uh, mm. sophomore year, November 7th of my sophomore year, I, my life just kind of hit a wall. And I looked around and thought, who has something in my life that I want to have? I want to emulate and it turned out it was these seven Christian guys. And so I remember dusting off a Bible that was packed away in a drawer somewhere and uh, beginning to read the Gospel of John. And when I got to John 10, it said, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that you might have life and have it to its fullest. That word fullest just jumped off the page. And I can hmm. still remember the Holy Spirit kind of making the point that these men in your life have life to the fullest, and your life is being stolen from you and and destroyed by the decisions you're making and i i remember i had this deep theological prayer where i just said god i quit whatever i'm doing isn't working i quit and i want to follow jesus and uh, those guys began to disciple me and mentor me and over the course of the next two years living that fraternity house that was my introduction to ministry um in a kind of a cross-cultural space living out a, a unique set of practices there um, and that was my introduction to kind of the idea of missional communities. Of course, yeah. the irony is, you know, we didn't have language for that back then. These were just young life kids who had been trained to kind of uh, do incarnational ministry and had a vision for doing that. But now I think I, my understanding is that the origin story of my faith was really rooted in this idea of the missional nature of God and his church to cross over boundaries and to go into places and to be sent out to embody the good news in the kingdom of God. And that's what reached me. And so that was kind of the beginning of my, my story. And eventually I, I led a fellowship of Christian athletes group for a while on campus, felt uh, kind of a, a full-time call to equipping ministry and went to seminary in Chicago, uh, got married, met my wife, Kristen there. She was doing her master's in bioethics. And then we decided to go back to Williamsburg and uh, work at a church that uh, had been influential in my life. And so the, 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 the story of my kind of ministry journey that began in a very kind of missional incarnational way, then kind of pivots to more of the American attractional megachurch model where I joined a staff. Yeah. I joined the staff of a church that was at that time about four or 500 grew to about 3,500. Uh, we ended up with kind of 60 staff. We built the $16 million building, you know, we had the, mm -hmm. 1500 person worship sanctuary. I mean, all the metrics that were important in that movement. Um, and we were just felt like we were killing it. You know, everything was up and to the right, as Bill Hybels used to say, when it comes to church growth. And, um, oh. and while that was all happening externally, I started having some kind of erosion of my own soul internally. Hmm. And uh, by, by about year seven, eight, nine, I, I think I was kind of having a, a crisis that everything I was experiencing um, had kind of a, a vibe to it or maybe a, uh, a veneer to it that uh, I, I felt like was not necessarily connected to, to the Holy Spirit's work in the world. And uh, mm -hmm. without dismissing or discrediting that movement or even that church, which I love the people there, and I never hold any individual accountable for that, I, I was as much a part of the culture we were creating as anyone there. 
Um, but I began to just kind of realize there were whole sectors of our culture and society that we weren't impacting. There were socioeconomic lines we weren't crossing, racial issues we weren't addressing, um, sectors of society like arts and government and uh, even education that we didn't really have much voice in. We were basically just a Sunday-centric, program-driven church mm-hmm. for upper, upper middle-class white people. Right. And um, yeah. and we were basically attracting the majority of Christians from other churches like ours around town and in some ways putting them out of business um, yep. and, you know, kind of colonizing that city until we had taken as much market share as we could. Um, mm. And that's a, a really potentially cynical way of looking at it. And it's not how I viewed it in the, in the moment. But I think in retrospect, that's uh, a lot of what I uh, think we were doing there. Um, and part of that then I realized was that it was eroding my soul, that there was a, a leadership hierarchy and a leadership um, culture that I was describing to that I began to sense might not be as healthy as I thought. Yeah. You know, there was a, a part of me that kind of wanted to ascend to the throne of this empire and I was waiting for the king to step down and anoint the prince as the new king. And, you know, I, I say all this kind of, but I, it's really what I was thinking. You yep. know, I could never share this with anyone, but man, I couldn't wait to be in charge. I couldn't wait to preach 40 Sundays a year. I couldn't wait to be on that stage in front of everyone and, and be receiving the affirmation and the financial gifts and the perks that came with that. And, um, and there was just something that felt dirty about that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and yet everyone I seem to admire in the this kind of evangelical attractional church world seemed to be doing it. Right. Um, and it was about that time that guys started failing and falling and, uh. and having mm. moral issues and, um, you know, these kind of the social media was just beginning and stuff was becoming reported. And next thing you know, it, it didn't take me long to realize like, oh, this is unhealthy. And this is actually kind of killing the soul of these leaders. And it's probably unhealthy for the local community as well. Um, but I didn't know what else to do. And so, Jeff, that's actually where right. I discovered Communitas then was in my own kind of silence and prayer of like, God, what's next? If this isn't the thing that I'm going to do, if I don't want to be part of this movement, is there any other movement where the spirit is working that I could um, join? And uh, we had some friends, Carlton and Shannon Deal, who were part of a Communitas project over there in Brussels, Belgium. And they shared a little bit about how God was working in not a mega way, but in a micro way Yes, uh, and working in post-Christian culture in Europe. And they were kind enough to invite us to come join them and, and kind of serve alongside them and experiment a little bit in the sandbox of post-Christianity and uh, kind of wrestle with them on some new paradigms to kind of see what might work in a, in a new culture where the church might need to be expressed differently. And so hmm. we, packed up our family of four and six and moved over there and spent three years on Communitas staff there serving in that city and helping plant microchurches in different neighborhoods. And really that decision kind of changed the trajectory of, of my whole ministry life. And uh, and that's it's been about 11 years since that decision. And um, it's been incredibly fruitful ministry since then. And I continue to enjoy learning and being part of this tribe that is constantly imagining and experimenting with new ways of being the church for this new culture that we're facing. Yeah, that's outstanding. And, and I know you, you speak, you speak to some of this in, in a, a recent book that you wrote, and we'll get to that too uh, in, in a moment, but I, I I'm curious to think back to that fraternity, right? Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I can tell you in my fraternity, we didn't have prayer circles going on. Uh, I mean, there may have been circles, <laughs> but there wasn't prayer going on. So um I find that fascinating. It kind of begs the question of what is church 
in a sense, mm-hmm. right? Because yeah. I mean, you said you weren't going to church, but but you you were you were the church in that fraternity. Mm-hmm. So speak to that a little bit. I mean, the paradigm shifted dramatically for you by you know going to a, a, a mega church movement kind of kind of place. But w- was it kind of like going back to your roots when you went to Europe and started expressing it in a different way? Yeah, you know, it, it took me a while to realize that, but it 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 does kind of feel like this, you know, the classic hero's journey where the the hero is born in their ordinary world or their natural world, and then they get sent out into the special world, and eventually they return home, um, and it's kind of this re- return to their origins, but now they feel like the world that they return to is the same, but they're different, mm-hmm. and I think that's what kind of I experienced a little bit was I was going back to a form of church that had reached me, but I was a different person now. And I'd had kind of a new perspective on um, how to engage that way. But a lot of the practices that those original seven Sigma Chi's were engaging in became the, the normative practices for us as missionaries in Europe, you know, focusing on things like proximity. You know, how do you live in close proximity to those that you're trying to reach um, and, and serve? You know, so the beauty of a fraternity house is it's 45 guys living in the same building, sharing showers and food and walking to the meals and all that kind of stuff together. Right. And, yep. and the good, the bad, and the ugly, you know, you wake up at 2 a.m., you find someone puking in the hallway. Guess what? You're in proximity to that lifestyle. And so those were some of the challenges as well was yep. I couldn't now that I made a decision to follow Jesus. And for about six months there, I didn't drink. I didn't date. I kind of just detoxed my life. But I'm telling you, no one around me was detoxing. And there was a, a lot of animosity towards mm. me sure. um, because I had made that change. You know, I remember the, the phrase was Rittner's gone to the dark side, you know. <laughs> so a lot of 2 a.m. come home from the bar, beat on Rittner's door, trying to wake him up because, you know, he's not with us anymore. So, you know, even that piece of being willing to endure a little bit of maybe potential social shame, even some suffering. And how do you handle that? Um, that social ostracization or even maybe the light level persecution, so to speak, where someone is attacking you or they're against you because of your faith. Um, do you attack back? Do you, you know, find a way to turn the other cheek? I mean, all those sort of skills were things that we were then using in Europe as well, where there was kind of a weirdness about being a Christian in a post-Christian culture. Right. You know, uh, people look askance and kind of raise an eye and be like, really, you still believe that stuff? Um, you don't argue with that, you know, you try to find a winsome way to, to come back to that sort of approach. So proximity was a big thing, kind of faithful presence. I mean, deciding to live in that house, um, you know, the, the idea of God's provenient grace that to really believe that God was working in the lives of those other individuals. Um, I remember one of my fraternity brothers committed suicide six months after I met Jesus Hmm. and, uh, praying with these other Christian guys to say like, this could be a meaningful moment in the life of this house where people are wondering about questions of eternity and afterlife and uh, where is God in the midst of hard things. And so, you know, we want to partner with what God might be doing in their life, as opposed to having this burden that we have to bring the gospel ourselves, you know, or that somehow Jesus isn't working until we show up. Uh, That was a big part of what we did in Europe. You know, we called it kind of the spiritual scavenger hunt. Let's just go about our life in the city and see if we can discern the breadcrumbs of where God's already working and mm. then ask, how can we join you here? You know, yep. this seems like a, a great place to do ministry and you're already engaged. Is there anything we can do to add value? 
Um, so yeah, some of those kind of those missional incarnational skills were embedded in me early on and I was having to kind of dust them off and look at them again and then put them into practice myself. So I love that you kind of made that connection. So, um, you talk about post-Christian in, in describing Europe in particular, um, explain that a little bit. What does that mean? What does that context mean? What are the cultural differences and is America following in Europe's footsteps? Mm, yeah. North America. You know, um, I think the the best way to understand post-Christianity is to connect it to pre-Christianity or pre-Christendom, because that's actually a culture that, that most followers of Jesus are aware of because they've studied it in the Bible. Mm-hmm. So if you look at the Gospels, if you look at the book of Acts, if you look at Paul's letters, you see a culture in which the followers of Jesus have very little power. They have uh, very little resources. You know, they're pooling money together to help each other out, but they, they, they're not wealthy by any means. Um, they are beginning to be persecuted, and so they're scattering. And we know that that'll even get worse into the 50, 60, 70 AD time. Um, and they, they don't have higher education training centers. Um, they don't have buildings to meet in. They don't have a lot of formal programs. There's not a professional class of pastors. You have someone like Paul who feels this call to be an apostle and to move around and, and equip people, but that's about the most you got in the pre-Christendom era when it came to a professional clergy class. Um, that era where the church kind of grew as a people movement, disciples making disciples, um, is uh, is kind of the the cultural norm when Christianity has no uh, real power influence. Right. We all know that kind of when, when Constantine normalized Christianity and when in some ways he decriminalized it um, later, the Council of Nicaea, and we kind of move forward, we now see that Christianity grew to be more of a, an empire, you know, through Europe and then through the world. And out of that then came wealth and power and prestige and being at the center of culture and being able to create norms and ethics and morality that were often ascribed to others who may not even believe that. Um, beginning with the Enlightenment and scientific revolution, and maybe let's just call it the last 300 years, you know, that has begun to wane, starting specifically in Europe. Uh, and again, I'm talking primarily about Western culture here. Or there's, there's Eastern cultures and African cultures, Latin cultures, where this experience is not the same. Yep. And even in a city like LA, a lot of those cultures, majority word cultures, live here and are not being as impacted by the kind of the post-Christendom shift that we have seen coming from Europe to America. But all that to say is that the, the best way to think of post-Christianity is that it is the era that comes after Christianity dominates the culture. Hmm. Um, and people are um, upgrading in their mind from an old worldview of Christianity that they now see as out of date, antiquated, no longer helpful or useful. And they are updating to a new cultural reality that is much more secular in nature that doesn't rely on a transcendent God for identity and purpose and meaning. Uh, and in many ways, they view it as being more liberating and, and uh, proclaiming the value of the individual and self-expression and freedom and all that sort of stuff. And so I, I kind of think about it sometimes as like, you know, when you have a phone and you feel like your phone is out of date, it's slow, it's buggy, the camera's not very good. You're looking around, you see other people experimenting with something new in their phones that seems to add value to their life. And you just think, you know what? I'm going to buy a new phone. I'm going to upgrade. Um, and in many ways, people are upgrading. 
their spirituality, they're upgrading their operating system, so to speak, away from Christianity and into more of a, a secular, um, spiritual, but not religious sort of operating system. Right. Um, and that's a game changer for the church. You know, my friend Brad Briscoe is the first guy I ever heard say that, you know, it's like we've lost home field advantage. You know, as an old athlete, there's just a there's just something about playing on your home court when all the fans are cheering for you and you know that locker room and you know every nook and cranny of that court, you know, and, and where the ball bounces. And then all of a sudden you go on the road and it just feels a little more hostile. You, you feel like you don't shoot as well. Your performance dips. And that's what most Christians are feeling now is a is a, a decentering, a marginalization, um, and just an awkwardness of not knowing kind of the the way the world works like we used to when we were centered. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't necessarily think that's bad for the spread of the gospel or for the church movement, but it's definitely different, and it requires a new set of skills and a, and a new mindset for sure. Yeah, thank you for that insight. So, um, and, and maybe we'll be jumping around a little bit here. So you come back from Europe, and now you're back in the North American context, uh, but in a place like Hollywood. So, speak to some of that and how how you managed that, uh, and what it really means to be the church in that context. Yeah, yeah. Our call to Europe always came with this. Um, the sense of return, you know, the, the, when we told, we told Carlton Shannon, we feel called to come join you for a short period of time and then to return to the U S and apply the lessons that we're learning in a different cultural context. And so uh, after three years, we took a call to a, a church here in Hollywood called Ecclesia and primarily our, our draw to it was that they were embedded in a culture that was really shifting towards post-Christianity quickly. You know, the 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 media culture of Hollywood and uh, many of the individual cities or, or neighborhoods around Los Angeles um, are, are increasingly secular and increasingly de-churched or post-churched. Uh, I'll meet people on a regular basis who have never set foot inside of a church. They'll I'll say, really? Weddings? Funerals? No, they're in their 20s. No, I haven't been to many weddings. Never been to a funeral. No, never been to a church before. Mm. Um, so you know, the unique cultural challenges that that presents mean, you know, you think about it, everything we do inside of a church that we think of as normal, the practices, the the liturgies, the language, the sacraments, that's all foreign to them. Hmm. So, you know, the, the, this church was recognizing that for most of their disciples to go out into the world and try to make new disciples, the idea of inviting those people back to a Sunday gathering was increasingly challenging. There was not a lot of interest. You know, you they would go on set as a, a writer or an actor, meet someone, and even if they sensed, man, this person, their life would be transformed by the good news of Jesus. If they said, hey, would you ever want to come to church with me on a Sunday? The person would just kind of laugh at them like, what? No, why? Why would I want that? You know? Right. And yep. so um, the only tool that most of these Christians, and, and many of them are you know, raised in, in megachurches from the South or the Midwest, the Bible Belt. They've come out here to pursue their dream in Hollywood. They know their faith is an essential part of it. Many of them felt like God called them here, and they wanted to be salt and light, but their only tool for making disciples was the invite to church. And it's as if the culture just took that tool out of their hand, threw it away, and said, now try to make a disciple. They didn't know what to do. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so the the leadership team here said, hey, could you help us kind of think through this challenge? And I said, this is exactly my passion. And I don't have all the answers. What I do know is that our old tools aren't working. And I would love to join you in experimenting with some new ways of trying to make disciples um, and, and rethinking that Sunday-centric paradigm that relies on professionals, property, and programs to make disciples. And instead, reimagines a movement where every individual person sees themselves as a disciple-making individual. So let's go from, you know, property programs and professionals to disciple-making people, and let's see what that might look like. So that was kind of the call out here, and then we spent seven years kind of experimenting together in some really beautiful ways. Right. Oh, that is so cool. I, I, I like that paradigm shift in a sense, because I mean, you can never um, go back and, and in some ways, you know, glorify the past. And yet that, that is the, the method, if you will, of the earliest church, you know, before it became an empire, before Constantine. Um, yeah. And, and that's how we live life in communitas and in our projects and, and places around the world. Um, I'm curious because we're using some words that, uh, would even kind of be considered to be out of time and out of place, like discipleship. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we understand what those words mean from the context we come up through, but words like discipleship or even church or, um, you know, some of the things that used to be said at one of the churches where I worked was like on Easter. Um, you can come to Easter, but only if you bring somebody who's far from God with you. You know, if you don't bring somebody who's far from God with you, then please don't come because we want these seats. You know, we get two two shots a year, Easter and Christmas. Let's let's get them in here so we can convert them en masse, uh, you know, by saying a prayer and raising a hand. You know, it's kind of a thing. Um, so how how do we to be um, people in culture with a, a a wanting to do well uh, with a discipleship focus. How do we do that without using language that's that's antiquated or or turns people off? Yeah, yeah, that's good. You know, the same sort of skill set you have as a uh, missionary in a foreign language, where you're learning new language. You know, we were we were embedding in Brussels, which was uh, you know spoke French and Flemish, and then English as well. Our kids were in a French school and. My wife and I were making every effort we could to learn some French phrases and and to kind of learn some sort of conversational mastery, which I admit I never got to. Um, But, you know, you're you're trying to figure out how do I speak the language of the people locally so that I can fit in Mm. with my customs and practices and then potentially stand out when it comes to my character and my maybe my worldview. Right. So we have to fit in first or else you're just weird, you know, or you're always a cultural Mm -hmm. outsider. Yeah. And so here in Hollywood, you know, in this culture, yeah, I'm constantly trying to think, how do I fit in as a cultural insider, but then find a way to stand out when it comes to my own spiritual practices? One of the phrases that I heard, I learned early on is, you know, in natural things, be spiritual. And in spiritual things, try to be natural. Hmm. So when when I'm on the, you know, my key missionary fields, so to speak, revolve around sports. I, I grew up an athlete. My wife was an athlete. My daughter plays high school volleyball, so we're still in that world there. You know, I'm at a gym playing basketball a couple of days a week. I had a softball game last night with some guys. I'm on the golf course often on the weekends as a volunteer marshal or playing. These are great environments for relationship building and conversations with guys, especially. And I'm always trying to look for opportunities to 
talk about spiritual things, but to do it in a way that doesn't sound like I have a steeple stuck in my throat. Right. There you I mean, go. Like, yeah. <laughs> that's my old, my old mentor used to say that. And I learned that years ago. So, you know, I, I don't refer to myself as a Christian very often because I know the word Christian and it's definitely not an evangelical Christian out right. here in the West because there's just such a stereotype, a, a preconceived conclusion about people like that. And so, you know, I talk about how I'm a follower of Jesus or I'm spiritual, but not religious. And I'm inspired by the life of Jesus. Um, or I'll talk about some of the practices of Jesus that I try to engage in myself. Um, and, you know, this isn't new. There's been many books written about this idea that even the most post-Christian individual tends to have a positive view of the person of Jesus, just like they might about Gandhi or Mother Teresa, right? They're not ready to admit that he's the son of God or that he's a deity, but at least he was a good person. And I think in our culture today, you know, most religious people don't have the reputation of being a good person, a good, mm. decent, loving, compassionate person. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, you know, I, I, one of my favorite conversation starters is simply to ask someone, hey, when you were growing up, did you have any uh, spiritual or religious practices that were meaningful to you? Mm. Uh, and one of the things I've learned is that the best way to start these conversations is not with my own certainty about what's right that I'm trying to proclaim to them, right? right? Something like, if you died tonight and stood before <laughs> holy God, you know you'd go to heaven. And if not, let me tell you how you can do that. That's my certainty. I'm trying to leave with curiosity. Tell me about yourself. Tell me about your spiritual background. Let me lead with kind of a, a posture of humility that I want to learn more about you than I want you to have to learn about me, so to speak. Yeah. And, and again, I, where do I get that? I get that from Jesus. I get that from Jesus and the woman at the well and many of his other, you know, conversations where he led with that sort of cultural humility to want to learn about others first. Um, and that's so important, too, because part of the, the skill set of making disciples now is discerning what is good news for yes. the people to whom I'm sent. Right. Um, in a in a traditional Western culture that was very much oriented around guilt and innocence, the idea that Jesus forgives us for our sins and releases us from the eternal prison, so to speak, of, of uh, punishment, that was a, that felt like good news. But in post-Christian culture, no one thinks they're a sinner. <laughs> there is no right. real, you know, mm -hmm. there's no sin, so to speak. It's just self-expression. And, yep. uh, and so no one is looking for forgiveness, but they are looking for uh, purpose and identity and belonging. They're still looking for transcendent um, values in life, and they don't necessarily know where to find them, and they definitely don't have a place to find them that might be stable and might go beyond their own performance. So those are just the kind of conversations that I try to get into, and then I'm always amazed how the the the, the, the topic of Jesus uh, tends to come up as I share about how I answer those sort of questions in my own life. Hmm. I, I, yeah, I, sorry, Joy, I'm going to jump in one more time here. Um, <laughs> You said something important about proclamation, right? I mean, the the yeah. quiver or, or you know our quivers used to have in in them the the arrow we'd pull out would be sin, right, or consequence, yeah. right, uh, yeah. or or even fear was was yeah, one of the oh, fear, yeah, those old Halloween one. hell houses. You know, you put your high school kids through the Halloween hell house and scare oh, yeah. them to death with 
if you die, you're going to hell. And then when they come out the other end, man, they're ready to hear about heaven, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 I mean, that was the tactic, but, but in a post-Christian world, um, that's, that's no longer really a reality. People aren't concerned about, um, sin per se. So that, that takes away the proclamation element to a certain extent. But what you just said is so important because people are dying for community. I mean, that's what people are really desperate for. And so that becomes the lead, right? It certainly is the lead in a lot of our, our communitas projects, um, building, making, establishing authentic community. So. Yeah, it's, it's this inversion of the disciple making pipeline, as I like to call it. The other day I was driving by a church in Pasadena. And again, it's a big steeple traditional church. And I think they are probably still being successful by reaping the last fruit of Christendom. Right. And there's a generation that they're attracting that grew up in there. But sure enough, on their sign outside, it says, believe, behave, belong. Yeah. And I thought, well, yeah, there it is. I mean, that that is how we made disciples. We invited you in on a Sunday. We taught you what to believe. And then we began to discuss the the ethics and morality of the Christian life so you knew how to behave. And if you believe like us and behave like us, you belong to us. And now you can become a member, right? Mm-hmm. And what we've said at Communitas is that in this, the, the cultural reality we're facing now is demanding that we invert that pipeline, that we lead with belonging. And again, this is really nothing new. This is reclaiming the ancient way of Jesus. Jesus created communal belonging to people yeah. before he ever addressed their behaviors and definitely before he ever got into beliefs. I mean, he called 12 disciples who were a hot mess the day they said yes to join him. And eventually over time, because of the shared belonging that they had with this rabbi, with this mentor they looked up to, they learned his behaviors and the behaviors that were in the way of of God. And they began to emulate them. And then eventually through his teachings, they decided we kind of wanted these beliefs to shape us as well. But it started with belonging. And so... You know, when I engage a space, the first thing I'm trying to do is draw a circle around me and that person and say, how do I create shared belonging? Mm-hmm. Maybe it's sharing a golf cart together. Maybe it's, hey, can I join your team? You want to join my team? Hey, you want to go grab a beer? It's this, we have something in common. Let's have a conversation together, right? Yeah. Um, and so I, I abstain from anything that would uh, cause a division of belonging. And I still see people here in Hollywood, even who tend to wear their church swag around, you know, I mean, yep. by church swag, like, you know, their sweatshirt that has the name of their church across the front, or I even play in a softball league and, you know, there's two church teams and one team literally has a cross on their hat, you know, and, and I play in a team called the bad news beers. And that's what <laughs> I wear on my hat, you know, and it's, everyone kind of goes out for a drink after the game, but I keep thinking like, Man, that church team, there's something they're signaling with their clothing, even mm. that represents to those around them. If you don't believe like us, you don't belong to us. Right. You don't ha- want this cross on your hat. You're not really part mm-hmm. of us. Um, and so I, I'm kind of saying, hey, the cross comes later. Let's start with a relational connection, our shared humanity. And then as I build a relationship, I can begin to show how my life might be different from your life. Um, and why that might be attractive to you. And then eventually we could talk about what beliefs inspire that and we'll get to Jesus. And it takes a lot of faith that the Holy Spirit is working in someone's life, yeah. you know, um, to, to go that way. But that's one of the things that I, I learned through Communitas was kind of inverting that pipeline 
because that was a, a skill I never had as a, a tractional church pastor, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I'm getting the idea as you're speaking that there's pluses and minuses to losing this home field advantage, as you said. And so what can you speak more to what are the pluses in this shift that you're seeing where, you know, you can come alongside where God's working? What do you see? Where do you see the movement? The pluses are that for the last 2000 years of Christendom around the world, um, the most profound, prolific movements of God have been in places where the church has no power. Mm. Uh, if you really want to be where the action is, you, you don't want to um, have control. You don't want to have, you don't want to become an empire. You want to be a minority people movement on the fringes and the margins. And if you look at places like China and India and even uh, the early spread of the gospel into Africa, um, you know, God does his best work when when people are reliant on him and not reliant on uh, wealth and power and prestige and influence. Um, and so they're even even potentially facing persecution. You know, the, the, yeah, I mean, the fruit of the church is fueled by the blood of the martyrs kind of stuff as mixing metaphors. That's not how he said it, but you get the idea. So I honestly, I, I don't throw my hands up and say, well, it was us. We're in for demise. As, as I think about the marginalization of Christianity, I kind of think like there's actually a purifying, I think that's happening. Um, and I almost imagine it like when you're cooking and you've got a broth that you want to you know, simmer down and uh, you create a, what's that called? The, the thin, like, oh, there's a great word in there. A roux? Here it is not. Yeah, maybe that's it. Yeah. But, you know, you basically take a broth and you boil it all the way down to get the purest essence. And then you begin adding back to it yeah. and you grow it back out. Right. So then you add in some starch, some water, some flavor, but you've got the purest. In some ways, I think that's kind of what's happening right now is that there are a lot of people who are leaving the church or deconstructing and walking away, but the people who are leaning in more um, to, to the spirit and to his work, I think there's a purifying happening and the quality of disciple that is going to be needed to live in post-Christianity is much higher than, than in Christendom. Um, and so, you know, I, I look forward to seeing what Jesus can do with fewer people, but a higher maybe quality of disciple that's happening. Um, and I think a lot of the deconstruction movement is people expressing that saying, I, I want to follow Jesus and the spirit. And I don't think the church is actually doing that. So my yeah. local church expression is actually a watered down or corrupted version of Christianity. And I just don't feel comfortable here anymore. Um, and so even if it means I have to, you know, journey on my own or journey with a smaller group of people than I'm used to. For me, that's the most faithful expression of, of, uh, of the life of Jesus is to do that and to step away from the power of a, of a large church gathering, so to speak. Yeah. So I think I think that's that's to me one of the, the positives of it. Um, and then I also think anytime you force the people of God to be more reliant on the Holy Spirit, um, you get that kind of John 15 moment of abiding in him and, and trusting that God will produce the fruit. And so, um, whether that's, uh, you know, less financial resources or, uh, less, less power. I mean, I think that as the church has a little bit of a reckoning around our relationship with power over the last 2000 years, mm -hmm. uh, it, it is causing us to, uh, 
um, kind of rethink where the source of our confidence and strength has come from. And uh, maybe it wasn't really rooted in the power of the Holy Spirit. Maybe it was rooted in the powers and principalities of hierarchy and um, oppressive and colonialism and a lot of things like that that gave us a feeling of confidence and power. And uh, losing that in culture is not necessarily a bad thing. You know, it's it's causing us to re-embrace this posture of humility and, and ultimately the cruciform life of Jesus, right? That is willing to lay down power in service of others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he came into a culture that had a regime with a lot of power. And so it's kind of going back to that way yeah. of living. He could, Jesus could have been Caesar if he wanted to. Like, you know, he didn't have to get elected. He could have just shown up as the new Caesar, but he didn't. <laughs> yeah. So tell us about your book and how, how does that tie in with all of these concepts? Yeah, you know, this, this kind of journey from uh, mega church to planting micro churches in post-Christendom to helping an American church transition to this new culture. Um, I had an opportunity to kind of share my journey in a couple spaces. And I had a, a woman come up to me at a church in St. Louis one time. And she said, you know, I, I'd, I'd be really excited to read your book. And I, Kind of said like, oh, I, I didn't I haven't written a book. I thought maybe she was asking for a copy of it, you know. And she goes, no, no, I assume you haven't, or else you'd be, you know, selling it right now. She goes, but I'm just telling you, if you ever wrote it, I'd be really excited to read it and share it with others. Hmm. And uh, that just became, you know, a, a moment in my life of God communicating to me, like, hey, I think your journey has some value for others who uh, are looking for looking to go on a similar journey and maybe don't know where to start or don't know the guideposts or could use, you know, a little bit of a, a guide on it. And so, um, you know, I just kind of responded to that call and, and wrote this book and I, I call it positively irritating. Um, the, the kind of the central image for me is this idea of uh, the way a pearl is formed, right? So the, the irony is that a pearl, something of great beauty is formed by an irritant. You know, so the, the same grain of sand that can blow into your eye on a beach and become an irritant in your eye and lead to infection, um, that, that same grain of sand, if it gets embedded into the mantle of an oyster, um, leads to something of beauty. So how is it that an irritant can lead to infection or something beautiful, something bad, something good? What's the difference? Well, the difference is the response. The human eye tries to eliminate it. It tries to get rid of it tries to kind of flush out the grain of sand, whereas the oyster actually embraces the grain of sand as Mm. an irritant. It comes around it and it begins to build on it. And that sand catalyzes the pearl in a sense. Mm. And so I use that just as a way of saying the the irritant of post-Christianity is not the problem that we're facing. The real problem that we're facing as a church is how do we respond to irritants? Do we try to eliminate irritants and go back to the way things were? Or do we have the creativity and the adaptability to embrace an irritant and trust that God could form something beautiful through us and in us? And maybe even like a pearl, give a gift to the world through the way we respond. And so it's a a positively irritating reality is what I argue. And and so this idea of embracing a post-Christian world to form a more faithful and innovative church. And so that's really what the book is, is how do we understand this irritant that we're facing of post-Christianity? And then ironically, the book was in the process when COVID hit. And so we talk about COVID as an irritant as well. 
Um, and then and not only embracing it, but then how do you begin to build layer upon layer of beauty out of that? And, and you know, through experimentation and innovation. Um, yeah. And so it, it kind of walks through that story. And, and I've been so encouraged to, to see how other leaders and churches have kind of resonated with it. And then have begun to add their own chapters to it, so to speak, and reached out to me to share what are some of the ways that they're experimenting with new forms and expressions of church that they think are, are beautiful for the culture around them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's like an, a concept, an idea of embracing and accepting rather than just resisting what is. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which has like deep, I mean, I've had enough therapists tell me over the course of my life, like, you know, what, what you resist persists. I mean, all this sort of idea yep. of just embracing reality and define and accepting what is to be true. And then your response to it is what ultimately determines the outcome. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a, it's something that I think is baked in us as being a healthy response. And yet I see so many kind of uh, churches and, and movements and denominations whose initial posture is resistance or fighting or kind of this cultural war stance of argumentation and aggression um, because of maybe the fear it causes in them of, of losing their own influence. Right. I have another question that's kind of going a different direction, but I keep wondering about your kids and parenting and Mm -hmm. your own experience growing up as a pastor's kid of five parents who were all ordained and what that experience was like. Were there threads for you from your childhood that have continued throughout your life? Was there anything that's come back? And then how does that impact how you parent and what what you're passing on to your kids in, in all of this process. Cause you've been in a lot of different phases of your own spiritual journey. Yeah. Well, I'm so thankful that God brought a woman into my life who had a, um, such a rich spiritual heritage as well. Kristen's parents who are still married and flourishing and thriving and mentoring young college kids out in Chicago, even into their sixties mm-hmm. and seventies. Um, you know, we've, drawn a lot on some of the things that um, that she's seen in their life. And um, I think w- the big decision we made early on in parenting was that uh, for both of us growing up in church environments and, you know, being a PK and all that, we felt an external pressure to behavioralism, to moralism, to kind of conform to a, a standard um, that was expected of us as Christians. And that pressure to conform led us to ultimately feel like any lack of performance had to be hidden or concealed. That it it wasn't a safe environment to be able to really be honest with, hey, I didn't perform or, hey, I violated something you told me not to violate. And so I think a lot of our adolescence was lived in the shadows where we were sneaking around or covering up or hiding. Um, And what that kind of taught us in in many ways in in an unhealthy way was that you know behavior, external behavior was more important than the sense of kind of um, grace, right? Mm-hmm. And so, if it's that was true a lot that of our experiences, of, yeah, yeah, right. Again, yeah, it's like, this is the this is the culture we grew up in, kind of eighties, nineties church and stuff. And so, what we've said with our kids is, we really want to elevate relationship above rules. Um, and so, mm-hmm. you know, we've tried to be more transparent about ways we fail, and we've you know. Uh, asked our kids for forgiveness. We've confessed sins to our kids, so to speak. We've tried to be more honest with our own childhood experience. We've tried to let them know that there's nothing you can do that you can't come tell us. There's nothing you can do that will 
um, shake your sense of belonging to this family or your identity as part of us. Um, and, and I, you know, by God's grace, that's worked, you know, in some mm-hmm. ways. So I'm, I'm sure we don't know everything as I sit in my own house and my kids somewhere <laughs> wandering up and maybe we don't need to, but, um, but I think we have been rewarded by that, at least knowing that there's a, a grace-based identity to mm-hmm. our family relationships, you know? Um, well, you're communicating yeah, and then, them. They belong yeah, first. That's what I hear you that's saying. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. Um, and then I, I do think, you know, the, I hear my kids using some of our language. You know, I've heard my daughter Cohen say, Dad, you know, uh, they'll never believe how I was good news to someone today. And my mm-hmm. heart just like burst out of my chest, like, oh, my God, my, you know, <laughs> I can't believe that you're using that language. You know, uh, my son is a is a strong prophet on the APES gifting. And I'm often really inspired to see the ways that he's willing to take a stand for right and wrong and the way he doesn't put up with certain behaviors um, in a school, you know, that that I often as less of a prophet maybe would go along with because I don't I don't want to take a stand. So he inspires me regularly to kind of, you know, raise the bar, so to speak, in terms of even my own um, obedience to God and my own connection to how do you engage the the social justice element, you know, how do you create a, a just society in the world around you through one person's influence? He's a beautiful expression of that. And so, you know, now that they're getting older, you begin to realize they're shaping you as much as you're shaping them. And, and that's really been inspiring as well. Um, I, I will say, you know, the first thing that triggered in my mind now, Joy, now that they're older is I, I asked my kid, I asked my daughter, Addison, the other day, a question. And I said, Addie, you know, my generation, I think in the um, in the 90s, when it came to the gospel, they were asking, is it authentic? Is it real? You know, and there's still a question of authenticity in the church that that the Gen Xers are looking for. Um, and then I said, I think the next generation was asking a little bit more of like, is it inclusive? Does mm-hmm. Is there enough space for people of color and women to have power? Is there enough space for the LGBT community to, to be able to join in and participate? Um, you know, that was kind of more of the millennial generation. Mm -hmm. What do you think your generation is asking when it comes to Jesus or the gospel or church? And she kind of thought about it. She goes, dad, I think my friends are asking, is it necessary? Mm. Why, why would I need this? Why, why would I need Jesus? Why would I need church? Why do I need Christianity? And I, and it just, I was like, wow, that is what secularism does. It just says, hey, you can write a script for your life and you can find identity and purpose and meaning and community. And you don't need anything from the transcendent world. You don't need a heavenly being to give any of that to you. Um, And yet, as I watch her and her friends feel the pressure to manufacture those things in their life, Hmm. you know, to not receive anything from God or the gods so to speak, as I think historically, but as they try to achieve all of that, it mm. is overwhelming yeah. to them. And I can see the the exhaustion and the anxiety and the burnout and the way it is kind of corroding their own souls. And that as a father, you know, is what I keep trying to say to my daughter is, listen, I love the fact that you get straight A's. I love the fact that you you know, are studying till three in the morning, but ultimately your identity is being received as a child of God and a childless family and not achieved by your performance, mm-hmm. you know? And so, um, 
there is, yeah, I, I think that's a cultural, I'm still getting my head around that. You know, how do you connect with kids who think that everything you have to offer is unnecessary, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and, and that I think is a missional challenge that we have in this new culture, trying to reach the kind of under 20 generation. Yeah. yeah. Wow. That is so insightful. Hmm. Wow, that's awesome, John. I, I would suggest, you know, maybe don't feed them dinner tonight and see how necessary that might become. Good picture well, of receiving. And, and I, but I, yeah, and, but I will say, and this is something, um, urban life, you mm. know, versus suburban life. Uh, John Tyson said this, I'm not going to take credit for it, but John Tyson had a great line. He said, you know, suburban spirituality, which is what I had in Williamsburg, Virginia, suburban spirituality is often crying out for uh, a spirituality of engagement. They want more. Their life feels a little mundane. Mm -hmm. You know, they have money, safety, security. What they don't have is adventure. So he was saying in a suburban world, you can invite people to more activities, to go serving, to sacrificial giving, to go overseas, to you know, uh, all these sorts of activities that help their life have more meaning, right? And I went, oh yeah, I did that. I did that for 10 years. The pace of urban life is very different. People mm-hmm. already are sacrificing in order to live in the city. And they usually, the reason they're living smaller and more expensive and kind of fighting traffic and to commute is because they are already pursuing a passion and a calling that they can only kind of optimize in a city, right? Mm-hmm. So if you try to add things to their life, they get overwhelmed. So if you tell them that being a good Christian means you have to volunteer at a soup kitchen and you have to be in three small groups and you have to mentor four people and be, no, no, no. They just go, oh, I'm out. I can't do it. Right. Um, What they are longing for is a spirituality of disengagement. What they don't have are spaces in their life where they can rest in retreats and realize that their performance is not earning their salvation. Or their performance is not, you know, uh, proving their value in the world. And so the, it's more of the contemplative practices. It's reclaiming mm-hmm. Sabbath and breath prayer and silence and solitude. Um, and I heard him say that a couple of years ago. And I thought, man, that is really important that anytime I talk about missional living, I have to talk about alignment instead of addition, meaning take your current practices that you already do and align them around this missional priority of Jesus. So just bring new intentionality to what you already do. I'm not telling you to add anything else, not addition, because they'll get overwhelmed. But then secondly, how do we build in a rule of life to their seven day a week spiritual journey that includes disengagement? And so here's what's funny. After seven years, we stepped down from our role at Ecclesia and had a little bit of a liminal space where we weren't kind of part of a local church. We were testing churches and you know and eventually I found a pastor that I knew and I said hey can we just kind of hide out the back row and be part of your community and but I'll be honest even the the draw to Sunday morning for me is not as high as it used to be and so there'd be many Sundays where my wife and I kind of be like man you know what I'd love to do I'd just love to stay home right just have a cup of coffee sleep in and it was my daughter who would say, dad, I want to go because that's the one time in my week that I know for about an hour and a half, I will be quiet. I'll be thoughtful. I'll be in a space where I can reflect and be introspective. And what she was basically saying was the Sunday gathering was part of her spirituality of disengagement. Hmm. And I, I'm Chris and I are like, all right, well then we're always going, we're going, we're going, you know? Hmm. Um, 
And so I do think for, you know, the missional conversation, we often get a bad reputation of being anti-gatherings, yep. you know, like, oh, you're just trying to get rid of Sunday morning. No, no, no. That's not what we're saying. We're trying to re, we're trying to put Sunday in its right context that it's not everything, but it is something. But this is a great example where in an urban setting, I wonder how many of our leaders who might be out there listening um, could think about how do you incorporate more of those contemplative practices to your Sunday morning, you know, less 45 minute talking yes. and maybe 10 minutes of silence, maybe five minutes of, of a breath prayer, maybe, you know, uh, something that involves postures of your body or, you know, I don't know. I don't know what it is. Be creative, but something that helps people enjoy that moment of rest and silence and don't necessarily give them more information. Try to find a way to give them less of it, of their life where they can actually meet God in that void, so to speak. Yeah. Again, that's something she's teaching me that has been really meaningful yeah. and, and I think is so important in our urban, fast-paced environment. Mm -hmm. And especially for those younger generations to create the spaces and times where they can receive. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Wow, this has really been uh, insightful, John, and and thank you just for the time's sake. I, I would love to further the conversation. Maybe we'll gather again in a, a future pod and keep on these topics because uh, it's been really wonderful to to Rich. hear from you. If people want to get in touch with you, John, is there what's the best way for people to reach out to you? Uh, yeah, my email is johnrittner at gmail.com, J-O-N-R-I-T-N-E-R. -E um, Positively Irritating is available kind of online anywhere. And, and one of the things I appreciate about Communitas is that, you know, Jeff, you've given me space on the side to, um, to be available to pa pastors and planters who might be looking for a little bit of either coaching or kind of, um, you know, a thought partner on this journey. And so I'm, I'm always available to do a kind of a one-off call to process maybe things that you've read in my book or just to help, uh, you know, leadership teams think about these challenges. And uh, those moments are really life-giving for me. And so if there's anyone out there who would you know, benefit from a conversation like that, either a one-off or something ongoing, I would, I would love to have that conversation with you. That's great. And we'll put all this information in the show notes too. So uh, those of great. you who may want to look for the book or, or reach out to John, uh, you can just check out the show notes and all that information will be there, including a bio. So John, thanks so much. Really appreciate the time with you today. And uh, we'll carry on the conversation. Joy, thank you for the great questions uh, that you brought up for John as well. And you have been listening to another episode of the Communitas podcast. If you've enjoyed this, we encourage you to share it with friends, pass it along, uh, leave us a rating. You can find us on any of the major podcast platforms. And we will see you again soon. Bye.